Well, thank you for joining us this morning. We're glad that you're with us. As Jason said, if you're just now getting online, this is HBF, and uh, we're Heartland Baptist Fellowship here in Cass County, Missouri. We're so glad to have you with us this morning online. And we're in a, in a study of the book of Acts right now. And so if you have a Bible, we turn to the book of Acts, chapter 26. We're, we're doing a sermon series called Discovering Our DNA, and we're talking about the power of personal testimony. And if you are born again, then that's really one of the things that God has given you. It's a tool, one of the major tools that God has given us. And you might even want to say a weapon if it was a warfare. It's one of the major weapons that we need to know how to employ. And we get a lot of good example and strategy right from this text that we're going to be looking at this morning in the book of Acts chapter 26 is where we're going to be. And I pray that you're inspired uh, by what we see the Apostle Paul um, doing. I mean, it's a really, I've really never really broken it down uh, as I have to preach this sermon uh, in the last few weeks. And uh, I really can't tell you how far I'm going to get today, so we may be in this for another week. But, But man, Lord willing, we'll get as far as God wants us to go. This is an incredible passage, and it's an incredible example for us on how to share our testimony. And so it's often said that your actions speak so loud that people can't hear what you're saying. And that is really true. Our actions do speak <clears throat> louder than our words. But in Paul's life, his actions and his words are actually aligned. And, and that is one of the most powerful aspects of a testimony. Paul is, uh, you know, for those of us that are, you know, uh, probably 50 and under, <laughs> and I can say that, uh, <clears throat> we understand what WYSIWYG is. What you see is what you get, right? So that's been something that's developed uh, since, uh, you know, the computer era has, has come online. And, and really, that's what Paul is. He is, he's, uh, he, and he does that with no pretense. He really is authentic. He is the real deal. And so his testimony is so impactful that uh, it really, it, it affects the entire world, literally, as he will eventually stand before uh, Nero, who is Caesar. So that's what makes his testimony powerful, is that he is who he says he is, and he is the Apostle Paul. He is an ambassador for Christ. He is standing before a king, King Agrippa, fulfilling his call. And so if you're joining us for the first time in a while, uh, you know, we're in, again, we're in the book of Acts chapter 26. Paul has already appeared, and, and Agrippa, if you were watching last week, he's already began to share his testimony. But just in case you, you're joining us, I want you to pick up the text, and we'll rehearse what's all, what we already covered last week in verses 1 through 8. Acts chapter 26, verses 1 through 8. The Bible says in verse <clears throat> 1 of Acts 26, Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Thou art permitted to speak for thyself. Then Paul stretched forth his hand and answered for himself. And we talked about last week how when he stretched forth his hand, he did that as a, as a professional orator. He presented himself very well before the court. Verse 2, he goes on to say, uh, Paul says, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before thee, touching all the things whereof I am accused of, of the Jews, especially because I know thee to be an expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews. Wherefore, I beseech thee to hear me patiently. So, and this was the purpose of the meeting. that Paul was called before Agrippa because presumably Agrippa was very well acquainted and an expert in all things Jewish. In essence, he was the ambassador for the temple and the kingdom and the nation of Israel and the treasurer of the temple in Jerusalem. And so he had this role with Rome and with the Jews. So he's an expert. And then Paul goes on to say in verse 4, My manner of life from my youth, which was, <clears throat> uh, which was at the first among mine own nation at Jerusalem, know all the Jews. So everyone knows me, Agrippa. You can go ask anybody. Uh, verse 5, which knew me from the beginning, if they would testify that after the most straightest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. 
And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, unto which promise our twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come, for which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. And then this is his first question to Agrippa. All of a sudden the tables turn and Paul says to Agrippa, Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God raised the dead? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you and praise you this morning. This really is the issue of anyone's testimony. Is Jesus alive and is he in us of a truth? Heavenly Father, it is true this morning if we are born again, if we've professed Christ, we've all, like Paul on the road to Damascus, met the living Lord Jesus Christ and he has changed our lives from the inside out. Lord, we are a new creature in Christ Jesus and old things are passed away, Lord, and, and all things are become new. So, Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for that reality. We're thankful for the example of the Apostle Paul who really uh, turns the tables on Agrippa and asks him some questions and affirming the reality of the resurrection and then stepping past it so he can share his personal testimony, establishing that as a fact of the Jewish history, law, and theology, as well as his experience in meeting the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning as we look at Paul's testimony that we'll reflect, reflect on our own and not just what you've done in our life, but how we share it before others. Heavenly Father, I pray a blessing on the reading, the hearing, and the living of the Word of God this morning. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're following along at home, of course, you want to pick up the text here. We're going to go back and really start working down from verse 8 into verse 9. And I've already shared a few weeks ago or last week that, that how this is going to lay out, so it's no secret. The power of personal testimony, first of all, is understandable. We're going to see that from verses 9 through 23. It's also uncomfortable. We'll see that in verses 24 and 29. It's unassailable, and we'll see that at the last two verses of the text. So just by way of review, last week, if you uh, didn't join us, uh, we talked about how powerful testimonies are understandable. And, and the first thing that we see in the first three verses that Paul was very respectful to King Agrippa. He didn't come in with a chip on his shoulder. He didn't complain about his two-year uh, incarceration that was completely unwarranted. Uh, he didn't complain about the leadership of Rome, though uh, he could have because they should have released him because there was no charges. Uh, he didn't do any of those things. He just, he just was very gracious to King Agrippa because King Agrippa wanted to hear what was going on. And then and he also demonstrated his knowledge when he stood up and, and properly addressed the court. So people knew they were dealing with a very credible man. Probably some believe Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin. Uh, and, and that's quite possible based on the way he uh, conducted himself, not just in orating, but in his official capacity and the, and the, and the liberties he had to persecute the church. Also, um, he, was, he was credible, and that's really what he says. As everyone knows that from my youth, I've been... I've been a Pharisee, and I've not just been a Pharisee, I've been a really good Pharisee. And so it's well documented in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul was very credentialed as a Pharisee, and he didn't just have the, the, the degree, he also had the, he had the ability to execute on everything that he knew. He was very, uh, very into being a Pharisee. He believed the law, he was zealous for the law to the point of persecuting the church uh, even to death, as we know. Uh, and so we're introduced to Paul as Saul, to, you know, uh, at the death of Stephen, the first martyr in the New Testament that we get recorded. So then we see uh, that the last thing that we saw is that how he really talks of the hope, right? That, that really what we're talking about here is the hope of the scripture, right? Ezekiel, and he's, he's popping out the verses. Uh, not really. He's assuming Agrippa knows what he's talking about uh, regarding Ezekiel and all the resurrection uh, passages in the Old Testament, uh, the Pharisees believed in the literal resurrection just as the Bible teaches. And, of course, we believe that, too, because that's what the Bible teaches. And so, and really what he's, he's setting everyone up for is, uh, guess what? Not only do I believe the literal resurrection, 
But I've experienced it, and the resurrection is Christ. Just like Jesus said, I am the resurrection. Paul's like, hey, I met him. He's alive. And so Paul was very hopeful in that he dealt with both the, the, his fathers and then the nation. And so he was, he was uh, again, Agrippa was supposed to be acquiescing to all these things because if indeed he represents the Jews, all the Jews uh, would understand and agree with that. So uh, then we get to uh, verse 9. So I want to just kind of transition here because the points that we have there is that he was respectful, he was knowledgeable, he was credible, and he was hopeful. Those are all great attributes to bring uh, to someone when you're going to share your testimony. But the last thing that I want to mention in, in regard to this really is going to take up the bulk of verses 9 through 23, and it may even take up the bulk of our time this morning, is being truthful. Being truthful. And in Acts chapter 26 and verse 9, uh, we see that Paul is truthful. So in verse 8, I'll just back you up a second. Paul takes the question of the resurrection off the table for the moment by asking his rhetorical question so he can focus on his personal testimony. So he doesn't even debate the resurrection. He just he puts a rhetorical question up in verse 8, which we've already read. And he says, why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? And, of course, Paul, I'm sure he, when he said that, <clears throat> he's kind of just like saying, this isn't even a question for you, is it, Agrippa? Because you know this is true. And Agrippa's just sitting there with his teeth in his mouth, as we like to say. He's not going to say a word. Because we know in chapter 11 that, that he's already had a conversation with Festus, who calls it superstition. And there's no record that uh, Agrippa defended the faith at all. Uh, he just kept his teeth in his mouth and, uh, because he's a placator. And then, and then we see that Paul says, oh, you know that you believe this, don't you? And he's just sitting there because he can't afford to say no because there's Jews in the court. There's Jews in, in, you know, so he just doesn't say anything. He just lets Paul keep going. So now that's set aside. So Paul can now focus on really the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ in his life. So one, the first thing you're going to see, and by the way, if you uh, don't have a note sheet, you can get one right now. Uh, if you're going through our website or I sent you a leak, and if you're a member or regular attender of HBF, you can print that out and follow along. My wife, Amy Jo, is doing that right now at our house. So, um, <clears throat> But uh, the first point here is share the testimony of your past. We're really going to see three aspects of sharing your testimony. Well, I'm going to give you more than just three, but you really just in general. This isn't in your notes. The first note is past. But after that, uh, in general, you want to start in the past, share where you're at, and then share where you're going. But I'm going to be a little bit more specific as we go through this this morning. But we see that Paul follows that very pattern. Uh, because that's a really a great way to share your testimony. Start where you were. And in verse 9, that's what Paul does. He says, Verily, I thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. So he transitions and he pivots away from this discussion of the resurrection, which he just assumes uh, that every Jew that has any sense would believe because that's what the Bible teaches. And then he says, and, and by the way, while we're talking about this resurrection, I, I also, uh, I used to be, uh, you know, uh, thought that I would do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And so Paul's former position on Jesus of Nazareth is very revealing. You know, uh, and I, I do this a lot when I witness, because I actually empathize or sympathize with people sometimes that are without faith and without Christ, because I kind of get their argument. I used to be lost. I used to have, I used to have views of God that were not accurate. And so, uh, you know, I'm like, yeah, I used to believe that because I did until I met Jesus. And Paul's kind of like that. I, I, hey, I believe what you believe, Agrippa. But something happened when I met Jesus, right? And he goes back to where he began, 
right? So he's already laid out his credentials. There's no question. He can ask anybody. By the way, everything that Paul says, there's witnesses to, whether it's his background, whether it's him meeting Jesus, whether him preaching, there's always witnesses. And when there's no witnesses, he's like, bring the witnesses. So the one thing in Paul's life is it's very apparent and very public and very clear. Is our life for Christ public? Do people know we're a Christian? Do they know we're following Christ? You couldn't miss it with Paul because it was such a dramatic difference in his life. So Paul, being a Pharisee, probably uh, bought into the line uh, uh, that the Jews were selling, that Jesus, uh, even before Jesus died, they they were pitching the reality or the false reality. It was fake news. They were giving the fake news that Jesus was born in Nazareth. Now, they really weren't saying he was born in Nazareth. They're just saying, hey, Jesus is from Nazareth. So he's not, he has no credibility. It got, it'd be like saying you're from, well, you're from Cass County. So that don't mean anything, right? So there's this saying, no, he's from Nazareth. So he can't be the Messiah because the Messiah is born in Bethlehem. Now, I'm not making this stuff up because now what Paul, notice what it says in the text. So just be, notice how the word of God is so specific. He says, Jesus of it says Nazareth, right? I think that Paul probably had that parked in his mind and in his heart. He'd probably been brought up and he'd been told that Jesus was from Nazareth. Well, Jesus was from Nazareth, but it's like me. A lot of people today would say, well, where's Brian from? Well, he's from Harrisonville. Well, no, actually, I'm from Jackson County, but people don't necessarily know that, right? There's people that live in this county with my same last name. It just... People presume, well, the Brian's from Cass County. Well, I'm not from Cass County. Well, they just presume that Jesus is from Nazareth because, well, he grew up there. His, his dad lived up there. The economy was better up in Galilee. I mean, that's, that's where Jesus grew up, but that's not where he was born. And that's actually not even where his lineage is from. People migrate all the time. They migrated even in those days, but, but they didn't really recognize that Jesus was the Messiah. I'm sure Paul bought into that. Dr. Luke, who's recording this book of Acts, this portion of the book of Acts, um, he writes in Luke chapter 2. Now, Luke and Acts are written uh, written by Luke, and and they're written to a guy named Theophilus. Theophilus... Uh, uh, Theophilus is the the guy that is is, uh, presumed to be a Gentile. And so... Uh, whether he is or not, I don't know. But at any rate, Luke is laying out the lineage of Christ in Luke chapter 2 and verse 4. And, and he says in Luke 2, 4, And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David. Now that is Bethlehem, which is called Bethlehem. Right? Why? Because he was of the house in the lineage of David. So Luke, who's also authoring this, makes sure to connect the dots. Jesus was from Nazareth, but he is from Bethlehem. He's tied to the house of David. Of course, uh, Joseph was not, his, was not his father. God was the father, but, um, but Mary was also from that same line. So it's amazing that, uh, that uh, the, the Holy Spirit of God puts that in there so we understand. I think that that is probably why, one of the reasons, uh, Paul would have been so zealous. He didn't think Jesus had any credibility. But, of course, he learned later that Jesus indeed was from Bethlehem and that he indeed was the Messiah. So we see in John seven fifty two that the Pharisees worked off the assumption that Jesus was a Nazarene, so to speak. And as we've already saw when we were dealing with Felix and in this time period in Rome, um, the Nazarites, the Nazarenes, it wasn't about the Nazarite vow in the, Old Te- in the Old Testament like we often think of. And there is that, like uh, Samson was a Nazarite and they took a vow it was also the folks from Galilee. Well, they were a little, they were a little edgy. Uh, they were a little, 
uh, they, these guys were a little bit uh, well they liked to they liked to you know it was they had their guns and they had their god and they had their bible man and they didn't want the romans taking over and they didn't appreciate even some of the jews uh, that had compromised and they wanted a more pure uh, nation of israel they were they were they were problematic uh, they were a bit of a problem to the powers that be. And so being called, they accused Paul, we saw earlier under Felix, of being a Nazarene or a Nazarite. So that didn't mean that he was keeping that vow. It meant that he was, he was from that region of troublemakers. That was already dismissed long ago in one of the, the, the two previous trials that the Apostle Paul had. And so there's no evidence of that at all. And so, um, and so that area wasn't really an area that even the Jews were that. They were problematic for the Jews because it caused friction with the Romans. And it was just a, a bunch of upstarts. And by the way, that's who Jesus primarily chose, by the way, to start the church. But that's another discussion. And, uh, and so we see that, that uh, in, that, in that context that uh, they were also wrong. Now, I quoted John 7:52. I think I got a verse up for that. You can look at this. It says, Then they answered him and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. Now, this is a response to Nicodemus. And many of us remember Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee himself. He's, he's not just a Pharisee. He's a, he's a main leader. He's sort of like the Apostle Paul in regard to his rank and stature. He wasn't just an average Pharisee. And, and so Nicodemus came to Jesus by night in John chapter 3, and he had a, he had a meeting with Jesus. And, and Jesus is addressing uh, Nicodemus and, and really filling Nicodemus in on some information that he was completely unaware of, which is that you must be born again. And I'm not just a teacher come from God. I am God. And all those things that were just blowing uh, Nicodemus out of the water. And, and so, um, you know, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And, and tying all that into Moses. And, and I mean, he just, Jesus just blows him away with Bible in just a short amount of time. And, and Nicodemus is, is obviously it sticks with him. So later on in the book of John, as, as they are, uh, you know, four chapters later, as they are, uh, you know, accusing Jesus without even hearing him, being a good Pharisee, like the Apostle Paul was also good. He's like, well, wait, look, let's just hear it. We don't accuse people without hearing them. I mean, we're good Jews, aren't we? And then they laugh him to scorn. They're like, what are you talking about, Nicodemus? This guy's from Nazareth. Why do we even need to listen to him? Don't you know your Bible? There's, there is no, there's not going to be a prophet coming out of Galilee. There's no one out of Nazareth that, in that region that's, that's in the, that's going to be doing anything in regard to God's ministry. I mean, good night. I don't even think their income level would have, I don't think anyone there's even got a college degree. All they do is go fishing and tan hides or whatever they do. I mean, they, there's guys, there's, there's no way. Now, the reality is though, those same guys that were, were mocking, and, and, and trying to shut down Nicodemus because Nicodemus actually thought Jesus might have something to say didn't really account for the fact that Jonah and Nahum and Hosea and Elijah and Elisha all were from that region. And so they themselves showed their own ignorance and really what it was was pride. What's that got to do with the price of tea in China? Well, I think that's what was driving Paul. He was brought up among those groups. If he would have ever thought to look any deeper, why would you? Because everyone was so certain that Jesus was from Nazareth, which, well, he kind of was because that's where he hailed from, but that's not where he was born. So Agrippa is certainly aware who Jesus is. 
His father murdered James with a sword, and his grandfather had John the Baptist beheaded. So, I mean, he's familiar with a lot of what's going on. He's an expert in all these things that are Jewish. Uh, and so uh, Paul knew that Agrippa was aware of Jesus. He knew, that Paul, he knew that Agrippa was aware of all these things. So Paul then proceeded to tell Agrippa uh, and Bernice, who was sitting there with him, and all that would listen, including Festus, his, really, his audience is not just Agrippa, and it's not just Bernice, and it's not just Festus. Now it's everybody that'll hear. He's got everyone's attention. And I'm sure part of the reason he, he does have everyone's attention is he speaks a lot better than Brian Hedges. He's very eloquent. Even though he says he doesn't speak well, I think he probably could speak well. In Acts chapter 26 and verse 9, he says, Verily, I verily thought, thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests when they were put to death. I gave my voice against them, and I punished them oft in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme, and being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities, whereupon as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests." I just love this little passage. I could park my car here probably for another hour, but I won't. But there's so much just right here in what the Apostle Paul's saying. First of all, we see that obviously he's under authority, and he's, he's literally to the point of making Christians uh, that are worshiping in the synagogue, they're trying to maintain the law. They believe Jesus is their Jewish Messiah. You can clearly see that in, from Paul, Paul's own testimony. They basically, he was persecuting people that were just like he is as he's standing before Agrippa. He is there because he went to the temple and he went to worship and he did everything perfect as a Jew. He did nothing to offend. And just his presence there uh, brought forth the accusation, which was not true, which is, by the way, why we have to be blameless and harmless as sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. Even though it wasn't true, he, he, he was taken into custody and, and gone through this kangaroo court process the entire time. But you know what the reality is that he used to do the same thing. Of course, his charges were documented because he really did not believe that Jesus was Messiah. He didn't believe that. You know, a lot of times we're wrong. And if you're wrong about God, you're wrong about everything. I mean, there's really some things you can't afford to be wrong about. One thing in this world, whether you're this, this morning, if you're watching me and maybe you're not into church and all this stuff, listen, set all that aside just for a minute. Let me just, let me just speak to you as a friend. The one thing that you cannot be wrong about in this entire life, I mean, from your birth to your death, you've got to get this right about Jesus. I mean, you may think it's a joke today, and you may think, yeah, that Bible, this, that Bible, but you don't, don't be like that. You may even be religious and say, well, I was born, and I went to this church, and, I got, and maybe you're in a Baptist church. I don't care. It does not matter what church you grew up in. It does not matter. You've got to know Jesus, and you've got to know he's alive, and you've got to trust him as your Lord and Savior. And if you get that wrong, man, your life is wrong, and you're going to pay for eternity uh, because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And Paul had to find that out. And so it wasn't because he didn't zealously persecute the Christians. He did to the point of blasphemy and death. Paul recounts some of, of the many things which he did which were contrary to Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but, but I still regret some of the things I did against Jesus. I can still remember things I did against Jesus before I was saved. And my mom, she listens to these messages and says, Brian, I think you were a good little boy. Well, mom, you don't know everything. <laughs> so you weren't worth me on the, when I would, I used to actually mock Christians when I was lost because I was lost. 
I can still remember. It's some, I got bad memories of that stuff. So in Acts 26.10, Paul calls those of this way saints. I think that's also interesting. When you look closely at the text, notice that. He, he, he calls them saints, which speaks really loudly to those that are listening, especially if you're a Jew. Uh, you're like, what? Because to them, they were the saints. What are you talking about? So he says, many of the saints did I shut up in prison. So it's clear that Paul sees all of these that the Jews would call heretics. Paul says, oh, no, they're not heretics at all. They're saints. They were the saints. I was the sinner. And so he says, I punished them off in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme, being exceeding mad against them. Now, I love this word mad because uh, it's one of these English words that can go two ways. Right? You know, you've seen Mad Magazine, the guy with the buck teeth and everything. So, you know, mad means crazy, but it also means angry. And so but Paul, this word mad is used in both contexts. In this passage, Paul is literally mad. He's angry. And later on, Festus is going to call him mad, meaning crazy. Isn't that often the situation that happens? Before you meet Christ, you've got this anger. You have this pent-up just frustration, and, and you're not happy. You're without joy. You, you don't have peace. You, you just don't have what it, you just are looking for something. What is it? Well, that something is not something. It's someone. So we often find things to fill our hearts and try to fill up that stuff. But at the end of the day, it's Jesus that we're looking for. So, so the reality is this. is So Jesus is the deal that makes Paul go from being mad, angry, and then later on being accused of being crazy. Amen. How many of us have bought that t-shirt? Right? So you get saved and you were mad, you were angry, you were frustrated, you were fleshly. And then you get saved and you got joy, 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 joy down in your soul. And everybody's like, you're crazy, man. (laughs) You're crazy. You're mad. So notice that Paul calls them saints. And Paul was, was credentialed. He was a credentialed persecutor of the church. I want, there's this guy, I'm, I'm watching this uh, bounty hunter on TV, and, and it's just hard for me to watch. I'm like, you can just do this? You can just go to people's houses and shoot them? I mean, <laughs> it's just, yeah, the bounty hunter has a lot of liberty, man, more than the law enforcement officer. This dude just comes to the house, puts you down, you know, do whatever, chase you in the barn, you know, <laughs> whatever, knocks your wife on the ground. I mean, it's just like, I don't know whose side I'm on when I'm watching this thing. And so, so I'm watching this stuff, and I'm like, that's Paul. Man, he's got credentials. Hey, you want to call the police? Call them. They know I'm here right now. I'm executing a search warrant. And you know, when you find out what, when people heard of Paul, they were scared. Why? Because he come in like one of them bounty hunters. No offense if you're a bounty hunter. We have good friends of our church that are bounty hunters. So I'm just saying. But you know I'm right. Man, I mean, I'm telling you. They do what it takes to get the people they want to get. Paul was credentialed. He was credentialed to go and get the saints and, and, and do what he needed to do to shut them down. And if anybody wanted to question that, I'm sure that those credentials were still somewhere on the record books. And if anybody could get to the record books, it would be King Agrippa. And he, he confesses, you know, I made people blaspheme the Lord because, well, the pressure he put on their life. And I'm sure that Paul wasn't happy about that now in retrospect. That he, he, he made people deny the Lord. And so Paul was like, man, I can't deny the Lord. I, I mean, man, he, I'm sure that's something. You know, beloved, when we get saved, God, you are forgiven. I'm forgiven. Um, you know, God forgives me for, for mocking Alex Jamie's trying to give me a chick track on the bus, uh, you know, in Sibley, Missouri when I was 9 or 10 or whatever I was, or 12, I don't know. 
But the reality is, uh, when you look, I think God allows some of that in your life to remit to, so you can remember not only what you were, but what God has saved you from. You know, that's no longer who you are. You're a new creature in Christ. Man, thank God for what he saved you from. But man, sometimes there's some regrets. There's some regrets. So that's why we're thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ. His grace is so sufficient. He has more grace than you have sin. You cannot out God's grace. Now, that doesn't mean you should use your liberty as an occasion to sin. Paul makes that clear. God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? But when you need an extra dose of grace, you do need to remember that you cannot out God's love. You can't out God's grace, I should say. God's grace is sufficient. If it was up to, if, I mean, God, man, God, you can't, you just can't outdo the goodness of God. You just can't. So Paul is forgiven, but he was a bad boy before he got saved. Paul was not proud of his past, and he didn't glory in the shame of his former life. You know, that's always troublesome when you, some, it's good to share your past. It's good to share as much of your past as necessary, like Paul's doing, to communicate, hey guys, I get you. I've been here. As a matter of fact, I've probably been more zealous than anybody in this court. And this is why. But he doesn't live there. He doesn't glory there. I, I had a real instructional time one time uh, when I was preaching at the mission. And uh, one of my mentors, uh, Bruce Shalapi, uh, was, was, uh, we were having one of our guys from church get up and share his testimony. And, man, I'm just enthralled in this testimony. It's one of these deep, dark, dirty New York City eating out of the garbage can. I mean, I'm just like, man, what a testimony for City Union Mission. And we get done, and in the privacy of our time, uh, Bruce says, what did you think of that? I said, man, that was outstanding. He's like, that's probably the 10th or 12th time I've heard the same testimony out of that guy. I don't think God's doing anything in his life. And I'm like, What? That was one of the best testimonies I've heard. It wasn't long, and that guy was on crack again, trying to rob money from the church members. And Pastor Jeff Adams had to get up and say, if this man calls you, tell him to call me. You know, I mean, it was terrible. And, and so, man, I thought, how perceptive. It's good to share your past. God can use your past to lead people to Christ. But your testimony is not just what happened in the past. There has to be a changed life. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, Paul said, For I'm persuaded that the le- I am the least of the apostles. I'm not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul wasn't proud of that. He wasn't gloating in, yeah, I used to do this and I used to do that. And I was such a bad boy. He's not doing it in that arrogant fashion. And so when you hear someone sharing their testimony, they should tell you the details. It's very useful. But the heart attitude is really what's important. We all have things we're ashamed of, but now that we're saved, praise God by his mercy and grace, God can take those things that we're ashamed of and turn them around and use them for his honor and glory, and they become positives. And I can't, and I have her permission to talk. One of those is, is uh, you know, and I can say this because she's gone public, but it's taken her a lot of time, and that is, is Carol Thompson. She's a great example of that, someone who, I won't get into the details. If you're a member of our church, you know, and if you're in our community, you probably know her testimony. She was sharing her testimony. Oh, my goodness. I was at a, at a banquet uh, for Life Choice Center. She shares her testimony about this mother. They went through this circumstance and abortion. And then at the very end, she drops the hammer and says, and that mother was me. I mean, you could have heard a pin drop. And everybody's listening. Well, that was the spirit of God. And taking something that was dark and, and hard and difficult and, and pressed down for decades... 
And then after Christ, after salvation, after discipleship, much like Paul, now toward the end of his life, man, he comes out and he's like, hey, this is, this is where I was, but this is where I am today. Man, praise God how God can take things that we were ashamed of in our past and then use them for his honor and glory in the present and the future. Praise God for that. So share the testimony of your salvation. Don't just stay back there in the past. That's the next fill in the blank. Share the testimony of your salvation. In verse 13, the apostle Paul goes on to say, At midday, O king, I saw in the, in the, uh, in the way uh, a light from heaven. And, uh, and so uh, he's like, man, this is really what happened to me, king. He doesn't linger on what was. He quickly moves on to how uh, he came to trust Christ as Savior. Whereupon, as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven, above the brightness of the sun, shining round about me, and then which journeyed with me. And, verse 14, when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me, saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, who art thou, Lord? I love that. Who art thou, Lord? You know, who are you, Jehovah? And, of course, Jesus answers, and, and he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen and of those things which I, that, uh, I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom I now send, or I'm sorry, unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan, he doesn't mince any words, Unto God. That's really what's going on here. There's Satan versus God. That's what's going on then. That's what's going on now. And he goes on to say that they might receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them, which are sanctified by faith that is in me. That's why Paul told his dirty laundry, because he wanted everyone to see how God cleaned it, how God forgave him, how God covered him. And by the way, I just need to share this. The Spirit of God just is pressing this on me. If the only testimony you had is, well, I was a kid and, you know, I don't have this deep, dark, dank, dark, dirty life. Praise God for that. The best testimony you can ever have is that, you know what? I was a sinner and I was saved, right? I had a pastor friend of mine, the youth leaders were telling his daughter she wasn't sinful enough because she was convicted over this, that, and the other thing. And they're like, well, don't worry about it. That's not a big sin. The pastor rebuked him, saying, hey, listen, my daughter's grown up in a Christian home. That is a big sin. That's the Holy Spirit of God convicting her. She hasn't lived a life like the rest of us. So that is a big sin in her life. Do not take the, don't take the burden off. Let the Spirit of God convict her. Praise God. Sin is sin. All unrighteousness is sin. And so if you have a sensitive conscience of the Lord because you've grown up in an environment around the Word of God, praise God if you responded to the Spirit of God in the conviction of the Holy Spirit because you weren't so tainted with sin that you went off and did a bunch of stuff like whatever everybody else did, then praise God if you got saved young. And I think Brian Clark got saved at seven. He's walked with the Lord ever since for the most part. So praise God if that's your testimony. I mean, praise God. That is a great testimony. So sometimes I think we, we focus on these gnarly testimonies and the guy that was a drug addict or the guy who was a gangster, the guy that was this, the guy. Hey, listen, your testimony is your testimony, and it's a good one. If you've gotten saved, it's a great testimony. I don't care if you grew up and were homeschooled your whole life and you never did anything bad. You thought bad things and you, did, you know you did bad things. Whatever those things are, the sin that God's convicted you of, and you are a sinner. 
just by being born in Adam's image, right? So you know that in your heart. Whatever it takes for God to show you that is what it takes. Praise God for that. I just want to make sure people understand that uh, because uh, it's your testimony, not mine. The main thing is that you come to this place that Paul did where he realized that, you know what? Jesus Christ is God and he is my Savior. And so he says, King, I, I used to work for these guys who, who now want me dead. And so I get where they're coming from. I used to agree with them, but I don't anymore. And this is why I met this man, Jesus. He did resurrect. And I met him on the road to Damascus. And so Paul shares his salvation testimony, and he deals with the issues that were really at hand, which was the issues of the heart. He's really sharing his heart. This was my heart before. I was mad. I was an angry, religious man. I was persecuting saints. I was very self-righteous is what Paul was. And he was inside the law, he thought, until he realized Jesus was the one who fulfilled the law. And then he realized he needed a Savior. Maybe you're listening today and, and God is pricking your heart. Uh, don't, don't blow that off at all. I'm sure Paul was wondering how it was all these people that, that uh, he was persecuting were so committed to the Scripture. As he's going house to house, as he's rounding people up, as he's getting paperwork to go to Damascus. Why is it that the people I'm persecuting are more committed to the scripture probably than my Pharisee friends? They're not reading their Bibles, but these people are always got their scriptures open. What is the problem? Why are we? I'm sure in his heart, he wouldn't say it out loud because, well, they're worshiping the wrong person. This is for God's glory. But every time he busted in a house, every time he made someone blaspheme, I'm sure it was just another prick against his heart. And what he realized is what he says, what Jesus told him is, hey, Paul, you're not persecuting Christians. You're persecuting me. And you can feel it, can't you, pal? That's the, you're kicking against the pricks. As we saw in Acts 9, Paul wants to know who God is. And God tells him, I'm Jesus. Paul, when you curse, persecute my people, you're persecuting me. In those countries right now that, that, that really severely persecute Christians, I mean, they can persecute Christians, and, that's what, and they can think that they're infidels, or they can think that they're uh, crazy zealots and subversives to the, to, to the, uh, the humanistic state government or whichever, whichever persecution plot you happen to be in as a Christian in this planet. But at the end of the day, those principalities and powers are kicking against the pricks. It's not that the Christians are the real problem. The real problem is there is a higher authority. The, the, the Jesus Christ is not Allah. Jesus Christ is God. He's Jehovah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and, and if, if, Jesus isn't, if Jesus isn't your God, then you got the wrong one, according to the Scripture. Now, I know that's too narrow, for most people in the world today, most principalities in the world today. But that is what the scripture teaches. And that's why we have a place like the United States where we're free to believe what the Bible teaches. So when you share your testimony, make sure you take time to help people understand how you trusted Christ. That's what Paul was doing. He was getting him enough information to let him know where he was at and then how Jesus Christ met him on the road to Damascus. I'd like to spend more time on that, but I've got to keep moving. So many times as I'm sharing my testimony, I, I tell the story. Uh, you know, of, of how I got to, to the point of where I was willing to kneel on the, on the floor at, uh, at Fort Osage Vocational School. I don't always share the same parts. I had a privilege of several uh, years ago to, to come to the Life Issues meeting, and I shared, I really shared my testimony, some of the things that, that I haven't shared with some people. And, 
and Steve was like, man, I didn't know that about you. I'm like, well, that's not something I share a lot about. You know, so that was pretty deep stuff. A lot of stuff that made me angry and hateful when I was a kid. And so it's not something I really want to share. And it's not even necessary most of the time. So Paul knew exactly what to share and how to share so he could reveal his heart, which brought him to that place on the road to Damascus where he's getting ready. He didn't share every detail. He didn't talk about Stephen. He, didn't, he shared just exactly what God wanted him to share at that time. There was another time, I'm sure, where Paul did talk about when he uh, was consenting to the death of Stephen. I'm sure Paul would use whatever aspects of his testimony were necessary and were led of the Spirit to communicate to the people that he was witnessing to at the time. But you know what I like to do? Just this is practical stuff. One of the things, several times as I've shared my testimony, what I'm really thankful for is that when I was led to Christ, uh, Earl Cross took the Bible literally out, and we literally knelt. And when I say I knelt down, I'm not just saying that. We literally knelt down. And we prayed. So you see me do, reenact this a lot because I kneel down and it reminds me of when I literally knelt down. I bowed my knee and I confessed with my mouth that Jesus Christ was Lord to the glory of God. But as I share that testimony, I don't just jump to that. I actually, I actually talk about, you know, he opened up the Bible and he shared with me John or, you know, uh, Romans 3 and verse 23 or John three sixteen, And I just explained to them what that meant to me at the time. I never understood that I was a sinner. I mean... I knew I did things wrong, but I didn't really know what it meant. And when he said, for God's soul, or uh, for, all, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life, or uh, for all of sin and come short of the glory of God. And then I started explaining what that meant to me at the time. And how literally just kind of remembering what it was like to have those verses illuminated in a way that brought me to the place. And then when I got to Romans 10, 9, and 10, and he read this verse that says this, and I quote that to, and I'm just reliving what happened. And then the next thing I know, I just had to fall down and, get on my knee, and I just, by the best way I knew how, I just asked Jesus to come to my heart. I don't even remember exactly what I said, but I was changed when I got up off the, the knee, off my knee that day. And would you like to have that, you know, and then you just, it's just open. People are like, you're crazy, man. Or, whoa, I think I want to taste and see that the Lord is good. Use your testimony in a way that, that brings people into Christ. It's your testimony. And, and so God, however God revealed himself to you through the scripture, you need to walk people through that so that they can understand how they too can have a changed life. And that's the next point. Share the testimony of your changed life. Paul doesn't just stop there with this incredible experience on the road to Damascus. Some of us have an incredible salvation experience. Others of us are just kind of like, well, that was pretty just faith. I trusted the word of God. God saved me. And then the next thing, you know, uh, we don't compare ourselves with ourselves. That's not wise. What matters is our faith is in the faith of Jesus Christ and what the word of God says about his death, burial, resurrection, and his person. And when we receive him with a contrite heart, he, he comes in and saves us, just as the scripture says. So tell the testimony of what happened after that. Because if you're saved, you should have a changed life. That's what repentance is. It's a change of heart and mind that produces a changed life. In Acts 26, in verse 19, Paul goes on to say, Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision. Uh-oh. He's, he's naming him now. He's like, hey, King Agrippa, if you, if you got tired here, wait, pay attention. <laughs> I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. But I, I, showed, <clears throat> I showed first in, uh, to them of, of Damascus, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. For these causes the Jews caught me in the temple... And went about to kill me. Having therefore obtained help of God, I continued unto this day, witnessing both to, the, to small and great, 
saying none other things than these which the prophets and Moses did uh, say should come, that Christ should suffer and that he should be first uh, that should rise from the dead and should uh, sh- and uh, show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. I need to be very careful how I rehearse this because this is exactly very precise. The language that Paul is using is, is really in fulfillment of his calling. It's also pregnant with meaning in regard to what Jesus Christ is doing in revealing himself to the Jews, the Gentiles, and the church of God. And so the apostle Paul, from his salvation, is on mission. He says, my life was changed, and I went about preaching repentance. I went about telling people they need to repent. And he did that his entire life. And his life was marked by obedience. If we just want to boil down everything we just read, down to verse 23, what Paul says is, my life was changed and I became obedient to Christ. You say, well, you were obedient to the law before. Well, you can't be obedient to the law. Listen to me if you're Jewish today. You really can't be obedient to the law of, and not be obedient to Christ because Jesus Christ is the author of the law. I'm not saying you can't keep the law and you can't be morally right. You certainly can, and we all should. We should try, but we're all going to fall short, which is why Jesus had to come and fulfill the law. He is the author of the law. He is the authority of the law. And that to this day is anathema to many Jews because they think Jesus just came from Nazareth, that he was some Jew that just got crucified, and it was a bad deal. They don't believe that literally he was the fulfillment of the Messiah. Unfortunately, because of the hardness of people's hearts, God has put the plan for Israel on hold for nearly 2,000 years, 1,988 years just about right now. And, and he's done that to fill up the, what the Bible calls the fullness of the Gentiles. Paul was faithful. He was going to preach the gospel to the Jews, to the Gentiles, in this case, King Agrippa, the king, in fulfillment of his call that God gave him uh, when Ananias visited him in Acts chapter 9 and said, Paul, this is, what this, is, this is who you are. This is what you're going to do. And Paul never backed up from that. Hey, so our, our, let me give you three things here, and they're not in your notes, that you need, to be, you need to mark our testimony. Obviously, obedience. First is obedience, but not just obedience, faithfulness. You know what? Paul was faithful to his call in verses 19 and 20. And then you notice in verse 21, he was faithful in tribulation. He went and he preached and, and he asked uh, people to repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. And turning to God now meant turning to Jesus Christ, who is God manifest in the flesh. Not just some nebulous concept of, of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's not Allah or, or, or this God. It is Jesus Christ is the one true God. He's calling people to repent, to turn to Christ, change what they believed before, trust Christ as Lord and Savior. But it says in verse 21, for these causes the Jews caught me in the temple. For preaching this message that Jesus Christ was God manifest in the flesh, that he was the hope of the resurrection, he was the first fruit of the resurrection, Uh, all of those things that Paul was teaching and then documents in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and other places. The reality is that caused Paul tribulation. Are we faithful in tribulation? Faithful to our call. Yeah, let's go preach. Let's go do what God calls us to do. But when the Jews come to take you away, are you faithful? Paul never backed up. He was faithful to his call. He was faithful in tribulation. That's why he was standing there before Agrippa that very moment. Because that's why I'm here, Agrippa. If you want to know why I'm standing here, it's because I believe that Jesus Christ is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I believe he's the fulfillment of the resurrection. I believe he fulfills the prophecies concerning Messiah. And he's also faithfulness in preaching the gospel. He says, you know what, I, I, I went to the Gentiles, man. I've gone everywhere preaching the gospel. 
And you know, unlike me, he's really concise. <laughs> Paul's able to do all this, you know, in such a short time. 124 words, man. He's got the gospel out. He's got his testimony out there on the table in 124 words. I probably, I've said probably 2,000 words already this morning. I mean, so uh, share your testimony in a way that is concise. There are times when it's just not appropriate to go on and on. You need to compact things to where people can get it and get the gist of what you're saying. Paul did that here before Agrippa. He was very wise in the use of his words. So in five verses and 124 words, I, that's as I counted them. Maybe I missed, missed the count. Paul walks Agrippa from the time in Jerusalem as a Pharisee, persecuting the church, to his conversion on the road to Damascus uh, through, uh, through years of ministry, to his arrest and appearance before Agrippa that very moment. So he takes him from the past, he takes him to his salvation, and then he walks him through in a concise manner right up to the present. Man, what a great way to share your testimony. Take people from where you were. This is where I started. This is where I met Christ. This is my life that's been faithful. This is how God changed my life. And this is where I am today. And did you know what? Everything in my life has brought me to you. It's not about me. It's about you because God loves you. God wants you to have a relationship with him. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul's doing. So share your testimony. Lastly, on, on these points, share your testimony in a way that leads people to Christ. You know, in Acts chapter 26 and verse 23, Paul goes on to say that Christ should suffer and that he should be first, that should rise from the dead and show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. Man, praise God. Uh, you know what? Share your testimony in a way that leads people to Christ. Where else is it going to go? You don't want to lead them to you. I can't save anybody. You can't save anybody. Right? Only Jesus Christ can save. So our testimony needs to lead people to Christ. The power of a personal testimony. Paul's testimony, it was very understandable. You know how I know that? Because in verse 24, we see it. Look in Acts 26 and verse 24. All of a sudden, Paul has laid out this beautiful testimony. And before he can catch his next breath, this dude, Festus, steps in. I mean, who is Festus? Well, he is the governor. And, he, and, he, and it says, and as he thus spake for himself. So he didn't even take a, he wasn't done speaking. We don't know what Paul was going to say next, but it didn't matter. Festus bursts in and says with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth make thee mad. You are crazy, man. And so Paul's feelings were hurt. And he just couldn't go on any further. Because Festus didn't believe any. No, not at all. <laughs> Paul's like, okay, whatever, Festus. Uh, let me tell you something. Something that you and I got to know. If you're a Christian listening to me this morning, the gospel is foolishness to them that perish. And the sooner we learn that, the better off we're going to be. There are a lot of Christians right now that have the thick, thinnest skin you can imagine. Their skin is not thick enough. And you need to get some thicker skin, especially in the days in which we live. You're, the world is bombarded with false information about who Jesus Christ is. And much of it is from religious people. And so as a Christian, a true Bible-believing Christian, you better have enough thick skin to just understand that lost people think you're a fool before you even open your mouth. Because the, the gospel itself is foolishness to them that perish. And if you're listening to me this morning and you think this is foolish, the Bible just says you're probably going to perish. Not probably. You will perish. If you think Jesus Christ is a joke, then guess what? The joke is on you. And that's a sad thing. I'm not happy about that. And so many of us can remember when we were like Festus, 
right? And, and, you were, and you're beating up on Alex Jamie's in the back of the bus because he gave you a, a gospel track. And, and the only reason you were mean to Alex Jamie's, forgive me, Alex Jamie's, if you're listening to me, man, I, I got saved. Thank you for witnessing to me when I was lost. But the only reason I did that to Alex Jamie's was not because he did anything wrong to me. He was nothing but nice to me. He, I did that because there was something wrong with me. That's what was wrong. And I myself didn't even understand. Why did I give this response to this guy who gave me a, 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 a chick track? I didn't even know what it was back then. It's a little comic book track. Talked about Jesus, how you could be rich or something. I'm like, you're a joke, blah, blah, blah. I just beat up on him. You say, well, that's not that bad, Brian. Don't worry about it. Well, you know what? That was the Holy Spirit of God convicting me. Praise God, I didn't have anyone in my life to tell me it wasn't that bad. And I just later on had to process it with the Lord. God started convicting me. Actually, it was about that time I memorized John 3.16. God started working. I wasn't saved yet, but God was, there was a war going on between God and Satan. And beloved, in every soul, there's a war. And God is wanting to see people saved, and the devil wants to keep them lost. So Festus may not have fully understood <laughs> the connection, Our first point was that the testimony needs to be understandable. One thing we know that Paul accomplished in the first 23 verses is he made it crystal clear what was going on with the resurrection. That that Festus, you know, previously was like, I'm not quite sure. And Jesus, he believes in chapter 25, he's telling Agrippa, he believes in this Jesus guy that is alive. And they think that he's dead, but they're also arguing about the resurrection. You know, whatever. It's their superstition. Uh. And then all of a sudden he's listening to Paul and he's like, oh, well, he's not understanding Paul. What's really happening is the Holy Spirit of God is opening up Festus's heart and giving him clarity on what's being discussed. And it's very clear that Festus thinks it's foolishness. Paul, you're crazy, man. Uh, you're an educated man, but you have gone nuts, man. You're, you're, you're giving up your life for this. What is wrong with you? Festus can't believe a man of Paul's intellect and acumen would would come and be caught up and believe such a superstition as he called it in verse 19 of chapter 25. Festus saw the resurrection as simply superstition. Many today would also see it as allegorical and not a literal event. You know, many will let you have your religion, but they do not want you to take Jesus seriously. I can remember when I first got saved, I was warned by more than one person. Brian, don't get too serious. Don't go too far. <laughs> it's like, too late. <laughs> I'm already in, man. I drank the Kool-Aid. So I'm gone, man. Jesus saved my soul. I don't know what to tell you. Now, that may not be your testimony. That's my testimony. Seriously. You, you can be, and I've told you I've gone extreme and I've messed up. I've taught you about all that. But you can be religious and I'd rather you be more extreme and be zealous for Jesus and make mistakes. And God will help moderate that than to be putting your finger up, feeling the, that's probably not, that's probably not COVID friendly there. Sorry about that. Then putting your finger up in the air and, and, and feeling what everybody's wanting. What's Jesus want? That's what Paul's worried about. What does Jesus want? That's what I'm going to do. And if I'm going to be crazy, I'm going to be crazy for Jesus. So you can, you can be religious. You can go to that place. But don't be believing that Jesus is literal. Don't be coming home telling me that, you know, he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. I mean, come on, man. You're getting in my grill now. So when you go there and believe that literal Jesus is literal God, you become literally, in other people's minds, crazy or mad. 
And frankly, if, if, and I'm just talking to some of you pastors out there that want to be the pastor of your community. If your community, I'm telling you, you're probably going to compromise somewhere along the way, pal, because your community thinks Jesus is crazy, the Jesus of the Bible. And so you need to make a decision. You need to decide who you're going to follow. I'm just saying because I'm your friend. I'm not saying I'm any better, but some of you guys out there, you need to get serious with Jesus. So relax. Paul saw what was coming. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, he said, For the preaching of the cross is of them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Well, people will follow your religion. They'll follow your nice messages. They'll follow your cute speeches. But when you start preaching that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that we're all lost without him, and that he is the only way to salvation, right away, people are going to call you a fool. But, but, but Paul was not detoured, nor should we be. Paul is not moved. He is simply respectfully, and he simply respectfully disagrees. That's, that's your fill in the blank, blank there is respectfully. In verses 25 and 26, he says, But he said, I'm not mad. I'm not crazy. Most noble Festus. I mean, I'm not getting in your grill, man. Stay where you are, governor. I speak the words of truth and soberness. For the king knoweth of these things, before whom I speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him. For this thing was not done in a corner. May I remind you, Festus, that everything I've mentioned to to this point, I have witnesses. I have witnesses on the road to Damascus. I have witnesses of me persecuting the church. I have witnesses that I, there's no witnesses that I did anything wrong at the temple in Jerusalem. You can't find a witness because it didn't happen. Paul, every, or Festus, everything I'm telling you is the truth. It's actually sober and it's true. You need to really pay attention to this, Festus. And by the way, Festus, Agrippa already knows this and he knows it's true which is a bold move. I, I'm, I, I never really saw this until I was preparing this message, how bold Paul is. I mean, he is an ambassador for Christ. Implied in Paul's response is a sober warning to Festus. Festus, please understand that, that quite the opposite of being mad and crazy, I, I'm giving you sober words of gravity in what I'm telling you. And then he leverages. Paul leverages Festus's relationship in verse 26 with Agrippa and makes sure that he's quiet. This is masterful on Paul's part. When he says that in verse 26, he's like, hey, uh, and by the way, Agrippa already knows this and believes it. He does, because I just talked to him in chapter 25 and said it was superstition. He didn't say anything. Now I'm sure Festus is kind of like, okay, I think it's time for me to shut up. In two sentences, Paul makes both Festus and Agrippa uncomfortable. Sometimes the preaching of the gospel makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? Paul proclaims the resurrection as a historical fact. Festus, the king knows this is true, but by implication, you're making me out to be mad. Then if I'm mad, then so is King Agrippa. Is he mad? Is he crazy? Festus is like, uh, not touching that. Thank you, Festus. Now, Paul is asserting that the resurrection is a matter of fact, not based on religious belief, but material witnesses. This was not done in a corner, was it, King Agrippa? If we want to talk witnesses, let's go get some witnesses. If we want to have a trial, let's get a trial. Let's put Jesus on trial. Is he alive? There's over 500, he says in in 1 Corinthians 15, that have seen him. Cephas seen him. The 12 saw him. Uh, The above 500 saw him. The most part are still alive unto this day. And by the way, Festus... In Agrippa, I saw him. So let's put that on trial. Let's talk about the resurrection. Oh, and by the way, yeah, 
uh, he says in 1 Corinthians, and, and James. Remember James, your, your daddy put a sword through him? Yeah, he saw him too. Agrippa was well aware of the resurrection. I mean, he includes himself as a witness of the resurrection. Have you witnessed the resurrection? I don't mean were you there in history, but has the res- have you met Jesus? He is the resurrection. The preaching of the gospel makes the kings and the governors uncomfortable. Verse 27, King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? Whew! What happened? Who's on trial here? I mean... Paul, who do you think you are asking the king questions like? This is a second question, and this is loaded. And then Paul lets the heat off. Oh, I, I know you believe. I know you believe, King Agrippa. Why should, should it be thought a thing incredible with you, he said in verse 8, that God should raise the dead? And then he comes back on verse 27. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? You can't say no. The Jews are sitting right there listening. I know thou believest, don't you? That's why you're sleeping with your sister. He didn't say that. But Paul, I mean, Paul is, I'm telling you, if you want to see a man preach the gospel, we just saw it. Paul is a man. He is, he is amazing. He is bold. So the second question, following the first question that he had earlier, Paul places Agrippa in a situation that's very uncomfortable. Agrippa knows the right answers because he's an ambassador of sorts for the Jews before Rome, and he certainly cannot deny the Scripture before the, those Jews who are looking on. Conversely, he didn't bother to defend the superstition, right? When Festus said, oh, that superstition, he knew what was going on. He could have said, wait a minute. Let me explain to you why these people believe in a resurrection. Let me at least tell you the passages in Ezekiel. Let me share Isaiah with you. He didn't do that either. Why? Because he's on the fence. There's nothing that makes fence-riding religious person more nervous than a Bible-quoting Christian. I mean, all of a sudden, this guy who claims to be a Jew and knows all this stuff, he's nervous as a cat on a hot tin roof. Why? Because, man, this Bible-believing Christian is in his grill, saying, you know, you say you believe these things, but in reality, we know you don't. He's not saying that. He's leaving that to be said. Now, the second question really places King Agrippa in an uncomfortable situation. Because if you represent the Jews, you certainly believe God can raise the dead. Isn't that right, King Agrippa? Paul doesn't give Agrippa time to answer before he eases that pressure, as I mentioned. I know thou believest. Paul's wise. I don't know if Paul actually knew Agrippa well enough to say this to him from his time as a Pharisee. I almost wonder if they at least were not acquaintances or something. Because he seems to be very engaged with Agrippa, almost like they'd met before. I don't know, and I've not read that in any commentaries. This is me studying the Word. I certainly, based on Paul's comments, so he says, go talk to the Jews. They know me. They know of my history. They all, I think Paul was much more familiar with the, the court, the Jews, and all the people that had persecuted him than many of the commentaries would lead you to believe, by the way. So either way, it invokes an epic response and an exchange from Agrippa that, that many of us has heard. So you've got you to look at Agrippa's response in verse 28. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. How many people have said this over the past 1987 years? I went back and calculated since Jesus' resurrection. Far too many. I already shared a testimony of a man who, who had that response to me several years ago, the first time I went on a, on a missions trip to Monmouth, Illinois. Thou almost persuadest me, but I got something I'm planning to do tomorrow and I can't get saved today. Almost, but not quite. He's neither hot nor he's cold. 
he's, well, he's lukewarm. Like a lot of Christians today. You know what a lot of Christians are like? They're like Agrippa. Some maybe be saved and some maybe not. I don't know. There's a lot of people that know a lot about the Bible. They know a lot of information about Jesus. But when confronted with the facts of, of really knowing Jesus in a personal way, they get a little uncomfortable. Get a little wishy-washy, as we like to say. Why is he lukewarm? Why is Agrippa lukewarm? Why isn't he zealous for the law like Paul was? It's because he's riding the fence on his loyalty. I don't mean his royalty. I mean his loyalty. He wants to please the Jews, but he also wants to please the Romans. Eventually, in a few years after this engagement, he will please the Romans, and he will turn on the Jews, and he will cause a civil war. He's trying to ride the fence, pleasing the Jews, pleasing the Romans, placating everybody, being pragmatic. Today, many Christians want to have a foot in the world and a foot in the world, and a foot in the word, I should say, a world in the word. And it just doesn't work that way. We won't defend the church at work. We won't defend the the Lord Jesus Christ at school. That's what Joshua was saying back in the day. He could see his people getting a little bit wishy-washy. So his parting words to the nation of Israel, he says, Hey, uh, if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you'll serve, whether it be the gods of your fathers that served on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. There are some lukewarm scholars who play their hand on this very passage, and they don't believe that, that, that Agrippa's even saying what the Bible clearly says. Thou almost persuadest me to be a Christian. They say, well, in a short time, uh, you would persuade me to be a Christian? Like, Paul, who do you think you are? You can't convert me in such a short time. You'll find that in the ESV and the NIV and several other new translations. You need another Bible when it comes to that passage. I'm telling you, the King James Bible has it right. He was on the edge, just like uh, Felix before him. Paul had preached the gospel in a way that smote him in the heart. No, Agrippa was almost persuaded, but not all together. So Paul goes on to say, hey, I wish that you were all together. You know, Jesus calls us to get off the fence. In, in Romans, in Revelation 3.15, he says, I know thy works without neither cold nor hot. I would that that were hot or cold, Christian. I don't know if you know this or not, but today you can no longer afford to ride the fence. You know, everybody says things have changed since COVID. Yes, they have. They've changed. And so this is one of the things that has changed. Christians need to be Christians. We need to love people like we've always been commanded to love people. We need to be gracious and kind. We need to show the love of Christ. We need to be who Christ saved us to be. We need to get traction with the gospel. It makes Jesus sick when we fail to stand for him. Literally. The angel of the church of Laodicea gets spewed out of Jesus' mouth in Revelation 3.16 because they're lukewarm, neither cold nor hot. The angel of the church of Laodicea made Jesus sick to his stomach. You know, when I was a kid, I grew up listening to 61 Country. And uh, Earl Pitts was on there every week, man. And you know what he said? He said, you know what makes me sick? And many of you go, well, I don't even know what you're talking about. This dude would start every little, little uh, show with, you know what makes me sick? Man, I tell you what, one of the things you don't want to make, make Jesus sick is you or me being lukewarm. So Paul's response is fitly spoken. In verse 29, he says, And Paul said, I would, God, I would to God... Not only that thou be also, uh, not, not only thou, but also all that hear me this day were both almost and all together such as I am, except these bonds. Paul knows he's done his job. He answers Agrippa with sober and powerful words addressed to all those that were listening. 
And he doesn't belabor the point. He doesn't force it any further. He knows the door is closed. He says, and I'd like to have these bonds removed. But whatever. <laughs> Paul knows it's no longer time to pass uh, to uh, put the pearls before the swine. There's no more sense in arguing any further or putting anything else. Paul's last words do indicate his conviction that he is not the one on trial. The audience is. And that's really the truth. So lastly, we see that the power of a personal testimony, it's understandable. It can make people uncomfortable. But at the end of the day, the powerful testimonies are unassailable. So King Agrippa had heard enough. He stands up in verse 30. And when he had thus spoken, King Agrippa rose up and the governor and Bernice and they sat, <clears throat> that sat with them. They go to the side. Agrippa had enough. He was done. He has a little meeting on the side and, and then the verdict is in. All agree in verse 31. And when they were gone aside, they talked between themselves, saying, This man doeth nothing worthy of death or bonds. Agrippa, Bernice, Festus, they all come to that same conclusion. This is also Agrippa telling Festus, Hey, guess what, man? Festus, this is your problem, pal. I am not touching this. All the pomp and all the pageantry is gone. And Luke no longer says, King Agrippa. He says, Agrippa unto Festus. These were just two men trying to figure out what to do with Jesus and his ambassador. Just standing there before the ambassador of Christ, feeling very uncomfortable. And someday, if those men didn't come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which I don't know what happened to them, they will stand before a king. And they will have to give an account for the message that they heard from the Apostle Paul, who was an ambassador for Christ. And so, beloved, as we conclude this morning, I want to just reference a passage in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 4. It's one of my life verses. It says, But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, so also we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our heart. You know, the gospel tries our heart. Paul spoke on behalf of Christ as an ambassador. He wasn't rude. He wasn't, he wasn't scared. He, he wasn't ambiguous. He was polite, respectful, clear, concise, and ended up placing both the Jews and the Roman powers that be on trial in just a short little paragraph. Would God use our lives, our short little lives, to do the same? Would he allow our life to be so rich in truth, so committed to the word of God, that whether we open our mouths or we don't, people know that, you know what, that life is being tried by God. And when people hear the gospel, it puts the heart on trial. That doesn't sound as warm and fuzzy as a lot of the other ways I may present it most of the time. But the reality is we live in a time where this is the most important thing that we can talk about right now. It's not COVID. It's not a war with China or a war with Russia. Although those are important things. Don't get me wrong. It's not national security. Those are important things. But the most important thing that can be discussed right now is what are the ambassadors for Christ doing in regard to getting the gospel where it needs to go on time? And if our heart isn't on trial, man, then nobody else's will be. But Paul was convicted from his core that, you know what? Jesus Christ saved me and I ran my race. I was faithful. I've been faithful this day. I'm in these bonds, king. I'm in these bonds, governor, because this man Jesus is alive and he is the, the God of the universe. This is the last official sermon we hear from the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. He'll have many others, I'm sure, that we don't get recorded. He's going to stand before Nero. I'm sure that was a great one to hear. But this one God leaves us with, this is what God leaves us with, is his last kind of formal sermon before he gets shipped off to Rome. And I think there may be something to that. As we talk about the DNA, and I know this is a long message. I'm not really just doing this for the atmosphere. I'm doing this for the record. In 1 Peter 3 and verse 15, the Apostle Paul, 
or the, I mean, the Apostle Peter says it this way. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh the reason of the hope that's in you with meekness and fear, having good conscience, that wherein they speak evil against you as evildoers, that they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. It's preeminent that in these last days that we have a good conversation in Christ. It could be that Paul finishes the book of Acts the way many in the church will finish the church age before the catching of the way of the church. And so whatever the case may be, it's important, no matter what era you've ever lived in, whether from the first century to the last century before the catching of the way, uh, catching away of the church, whether it be tomorrow or be the next century, that we have a good conversation, that we, we represent the Lord well, that we are able also to articulate clearly, concisely, accurately, boldly where we stand. And by all means, beloved, we have to stand. So I pray to God that we would do that. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray for those listening. I pray if there's anyone that's lost listening. This is a long sermon. I'm sure they've checked out maybe by now. But, Lord, I pray that they would be drawn to Christ. I pray, God, that you would bring all men everywhere to yourself. I pray that we would go as your ambassadors and preach the gospel as we ought, that we would have a testimony of blamelessness like the Apostle Paul. And, Lord, where we have failed you, Lord, thank you for your grace where you forgive us. Even after we're saved, Lord, the Bible says we confess our sins. God is faithful and just forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, Lord, we avail yourself of your grace and your blood and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ as we know that we are sealed and we are set apart for your use. I pray, Heavenly Father, that we would be bold, but we would also be blameless, Lord, and that we would be wise and we would be harmless. Lord, all the things that you tell us to be, blameless and harmless, the children of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, Lord, I pray that we would shine brightly in this world as Paul did in the book of Acts. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for this time. I pray a blessing on the, re- on the reading and the hearing of your word. And I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we are concluding here in just a moment. Just have a couple of announcements. Number one, I want to thank those that have been faithful to continue to give. We're also, I'll be back tonight at 6 o'clock. And uh, we'll, we'll have our evening prayer service. At that time, some of you may be wondering what our plans are for next week. And uh, Missouri is opening back up. And, and how is our church going to address all that? I will address all that tonight. So if you want to have information on that, you'll want to tune in tonight. And I will get into that more uh, this evening. So let's have a word of prayer. This is my second prayer. Let's have a dismissal. Heavenly Father, I do want to pray a blessing on the reading and the hearing of your word. Thank you for the attentiveness of your people. And thank you for this passage of scripture. We ask a blessing on the reading, the hearing, and the living of it today. In Jesus' name, amen.